0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG Bad Boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Klobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay.
1: Hey, Cliff, what's going on? Nothing, man.
0: Just a beautiful Wednesday morning, day before Thanksgiving, getting ready to do a podcast with some of my favorite people on the planet.
1: All right. You told me you got a special guest today. Who
0: is it? Yes, well, besides me, because I'm special, and besides you, because you're extra special, we have with us a uh, um, world-renowned cryptozoologist in general, like a generalist here, Ken Gerhard.
1: Oh, nice. Hey, Ken. What's going on, buddy?
2: What's up, fellas? How we doing? Good.
1: Good man, good, just getting ready for the Easter, I mean, uh, Easter, just getting ready for uh, Thanksgiving here.
0: Yep, yep, and Bubble likes to plan ahead for Easter, I know he's looking forward to that, looking
2: for uh, chocolate-filled eggs around the tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could alternate them, you could celebrate Easter in November and Thanksgiving in April, why not?
1: <laughs> why not? Just do your own thing, man. Make it outside the box.
0: Right. I'm not going to let a calendar tell me what to do
1: <laughs> or, or paint on a road
0: or paint on a road. I know that that's where that came from. Yeah. Both. I was driving back in finding Bigfoot days. I was driving somewhere or something. And and, and I don't know, Ken, have you ever been in a car with Bobo?
2: No. Uh, well, yeah, I have actually, but not with Bobo driving. Is that what we're talking about?
0: Oh, God. Well, it doesn't even matter. He's worse when he's not driving. OK. Yeah. He's like it doesn't he- matter where he's sitting. He's the backseat driver.
2: He was shotgun in Ohio. That's the what I remember riding with him uh, up there to the conference in Ohio.
0: Yeah, well, it's super stressful to be behind the driver, you know, the, the, the steering wheel when Bobo's in the car because he tells you how to drive and, you know, and I said, like, "I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to." Bobo, I can't go here. It's illegal, you know. And he yells at me, Are "You going to let pain on the road tell
1: you what to do?"
2: <laughs> yeah. it's a good I'll, line. I'm stealing that.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to learn some knowledge on you. Yeah, <laughs> you'll you'll learn me eventually, Bobo. I'm trying, I'm trying. The whole road, I yelled at everybody. No one listens me <laughs> You had to roll with windows windows down, man. <laughs> it's not as effective as my mind responses to uh, emails. <laughs> right, exactly.
2: Have you guys ever driven in, in uh, any other countries?
1: Yeah. yeah. What
2: What are some of the countries you guys have driven in?
1: Well, for oh, wrong yeah. side of the road, I guess just Australia and England—that's that, all I can think. Of. That when, I, when, you think, when you say foreign countries, I imagine you mean driving on the on the left. Yeah, the well,
2: that and also just you know, um, different types of safety and traffic laws that we might not be used to over here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, um, I, I I was uh, driving on camera in Australia. I think I did a pretty good job. I didn't. And hit anything mean moneymaker banged some stuff up in england when he was driving so here's a story about traffic that uh, happened on our adventures overseas so uh, ken have you been to vietnam by any chance
2: no i have not i've been to thailand but not vietnam
0: i imagine driving is similar there um but i i, I don't know that i've ever been to thailand but uh, in sumatra and vietnam it was kind of similar just a, a tremendous number of scooters. Skeeters. But anyway, yeah, a bunch of scooters going everywhere, and like the lines in the road are clearly just suggestions at, at the best. <laughs> you know, no one pays attention to them, and this like this side or that side of the road—it doesn't really matter. You just try not to hit stuff. It's it's like the crazy video game, but like the consequences are real. So I'm I'm at this road in Vietnam, and I'm trying to cross it, and it's like a probably a six or eight lane road, if lanes existed as a thing there, which. They may be on the road, but but the people don't pay attention. And there's just swarms of people on scooters zipping this way and that, and it's horrifying, simply horrifying. And I'm waiting to cross the road, and it's going to be like a scary Frogger game. And I was waiting there so long looking for my opportunity to cross that um, two very tiny, very, very old ladies came up to me. They had to be like just under five feet tall. They came up to me. They they looked at me. They laughed at me and took me by the arm and crossed me across the street. Oh, I, really? uh, yeah. Like what a strange uh, turn of events. Because usually, you know, uh, young boy scouts, for example, are supposed to cr- let the you know cross the little old lady across the street. But oh, Yeah. Yep. In, in this case, the little old ladies repaid it. And um, and took me by the arm and crossed me across the street, and it was horrifying, by the way. But they they knew what they were doing. And...
2: <laughs> that's a that's a nice uh, yeah, nice visual image there. That's uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what it is. It's it's like New York City or Oakland or somewhere like that, where traffic is busy, and you say you know what, I got across the street. I'm just going to step out in traffic and not look at the driver and hope they don't hit me.
2: Yeah,
1: but normal people do it over there. Yeah, everybody does it over there. Normal <laughs> okay. people, as
0: opposed to people who live in Oakland or uh, New York City. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's amazing how few accidents there are over there for how chaotic. Like it's just such chaos, but it's it's kind of a group. Everyone's involved in the chaos. Everyone knows it. it works for them. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's what they know.
0: Yeah, it's it's like if starlings rode mopeds.
1: You know that, yeah. that's like,
0: <laughs> <it's> not <laughs> the kind of traffic order there is over there—it's insane. I just
1: got <laughs> a good story for my next Bobo story. We have a segment, Ken. Now we just started where there's a Bobo story time where I tell a story, and I'll uh, when, when we're done, I'll I'll do my story of my moped scooter ride across Vietnam.
2: <laughs> wow, nice. that sounds like an adventure.
0: Well,
1: perhaps we should get down to
0: business. Although uh, this is a fun conversation. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so Ken Gerhardt is our guest this week. He's a, a cryptozoologist, kind of a generalist, I guess. Or I mean, I know there's a number of those folks out there, but it seems that most people specialize in some sort of way. You know, like I'm Bobo and I are pretty clear bigfooters, for example, and uh, you know, various other people do various other things. But you're kind of dipping your toes in all sorts of different pools, aren't you, Ken?
2: Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've always been interested in, in the whole range of, of cryptids, as we call them, in, in the field of cryptozoology. Of course, you know, Bigfoot is the rock star. Everybody uh, loves to investigate Bigfoot. Um, but I've also investigated, you know, lake monsters, including the Loch Ness Monster. Thunderbirds is a, a big area of my uh, or a big focus of my research. Uh, Black Panthers. Um, giant snakes. I mean, there's there are all kinds of wild creatures out there that people have reported seeing that, you know, are lesser known and, and just simply aren't investigated that much. So um, as far as the generalists in the field now, and I've talked about this with my colleagues, I think it's just me, Lauren Coleman, uh, Adam Davis, Nick, uh, John Kirk, Chad Arment. There may be like, you know, probably count on one hand or, or less than two hands how many of us are kind of active in all the different uh, fields of investigation yeah probably depends
0: on how many fingers you
1: have I suppose
2: <laughs> yeah that's true
1: yeah yeah I mean but it's generally considered amongst people I know that you're kind uh, of you're the, you're the next generation like guy gonna take over another... I mean Lauren's not slowing down yet but Lauren's kind of like established himself for decades now as a leading guy like generalist cryptozoologist got the best all-around knowledge and uh, like you're the successor to the throne. From people I've talked
2: to. Well, that's very kind of you to to say. I'm, you know, I'm I'm always kind of been in awe, and this applies to the Bigfoot field and just cryptozoology in general. But I've always been in awe of the pioneers of the field, and you know, in in general cryptozoology, of course, it was Dr. Bernard Hügelmans and Ivan T. Sanderson. And, uh, that was kind of the first generation, a couple other guys, uh, Ralph wizard and so on. And then, then, then you had the next generation, which was guys like Roy Mackel and Richard Greenwell. And, um, so, you know, Mark Hall. So I'm kind of almost part of the third generation. I guess Lauren was really, is still active, but he was kind of like leading the way for generation two. So, right. you know, it's a responsibility to, uh, to carry on, you know, and, and, mainly to carry on kind of the scientific methodology and attitude, you know, and not not get drawn into a lot of these kind of weird paranormal things that people consider to be cryptozoology these days. But cryptozoology is really based on traditional zoology. So it's really about undiscovered animals. It's as simple as that, you know.
1: Right. Or also animals that once existed thought to be extinct but are still alive.
2: Yep lazarus taxon
1: yeah so okay bigfoot is like a there's things we can look at in the fossil record and say okay this this points to where bigfoot came from those other things you mentioned i mean thunderbird yeah you can see there's you know there's things that that could have been lake serpents lake monsters do you think all these things are rooted in flesh and blood like normal animals just not discovered or are some of these things a combination of legend and misidentification what do you think about that
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, I think you know a lot of cryptids, much like Bigfoot, in many ways, are cases of composite identity. Um, That is, you have different influences kind of being woven together into one archetype. So, um, for example, you know you have misidentifications of known animals. That that happens a lot. Uh, You have people that sadly just make up stories and fabricate things for whatever reason. Uh, and I guess that kind of ties into what you're saying about legends and folklore and different cultural things. Um, but, you know, but at the root of it, you always probably have some unusual animal. And I think to answer your question more directly, yes, I think prehistoric survivors, are, you know, has kind of always been a focus in the field of cryptozoology dating back to the beginning and so, for example, in terms of the the thunderbirds, of course, you had giant birds during the Pleistocene that had, you know, 12 to to 18 foot wingspans, living in North America. Those were known as the Teratorns. A lot of fossils have been found at Labreatar pits and elsewhere. So they, they those just uh, those birds uh, match the modern descriptions of thunderbirds and the Native American legends. Uh, in terms of lake monsters and things like Nessie, you know, people have theorized uh, surviving plesiosaurs or other, you know, zooglodons, which are ancient snake-like whales. Um, so most of those are considered to be kind of prehistoric survivors that are living in remote pockets around the world. And then you have things like the, the alien big cats. Here in North America, we mainly call them Black Panthers which are just basically described as like giant black mountain lions or, or leopards, essentially. And, of course, we, we don't have any native cats that, are, that look like that, mountain lions. Uh, no documented example of a black mountain lion. So, um, so, yeah, that might be the exception there. And then you have, you know, the Tasmanian tiger, thylacine, uh, over in Australia. That's kind of like what you said earlier, like an animal that's been presumed extinct, but there's still many sightings. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think a lot of times we do look towards the fossil history and look at some of the prehistoric forms to to come up with, uh, you know, thoughts and and theories.
0: So of all these cryptids uh, and, and just the ones you mentioned and the ones you didn't, have you ever seen any of them? No. Have you ever found trace evidence of any of them?
2: Um. I have to think, Other than Bigfoot, no.
0: Other than Sasquatch? Okay, interesting. But yeah. you have spoken to witnesses of all of them.
2: Yes, interviewed many dozens of eyewitnesses in pretty much all of those different categories. So it's, you know, unlike Bigfoot, which actually has a an impressive amount of, of physical trace evidence that's been documented, um, one of the real problems with things like Thunderbirds is there is no physical trace evidence. No one has, has found a giant nest or egg or eggshell or feather or even had a giant pile of bird crap on their car that they couldn't explain. So um I
0: bet Bobo has for some reason. <laughs> this is my gut feeling. Uh
2: with Lake Monsters as you know there's some controversial photos and uh some sonar, you know, readings that have been taken at Loch Ness and elsewhere that that defy explanation. I I, I guess you could could might consider that trace evidence not really but
0: um yeah vi- sure pictures and videos that are compelling i would assume that would be good enough trace evidence
2: yeah some have more than others you know the 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 black panthers uh i've never found i've never seen tracks but like i know in england where they have a lot of these alien big cats the beast of bodmin moor and exmoor they've found of large cat tracks over in england where there there aren't supposed to be any really big cats so But I I haven't. I haven't found mostly just uh, eyewitness accounts. You know, eyewitness interviews uh, is really the majority of the the evidence that I've collected.
1: You were talking about the the combination compilation, like misidentification, like legends, uh, different legends mixing in. Like Mm -hmm. for me, the top, the top. For me, the most. uh, For me, the best example of this compilation of. Misidentification, um, real sightings, and folklore mixed in it would be the Mapinguari of South America. That's a good one. There.
0: Yeah. What uh, do you think about the Mapinguari?
1: Well, um,
2: I haven't. Unlike you guys, it's been many decades since I've been to the Amazon. So when I was there, I didn't really hear much about the Mapinguari. But um, I think that the theory about the surviving ground sloth is interesting that the work that David Oren has done i think that you know he's certainly has put the time in in terms of interviewing the the native people and collected so many descriptions and accounts that just didn't really seem to, to fit with a with a hominin so um, but, uh, you know, it could be, again, the Mopanguari could be a composite identity. Maybe there is a hominin. You guys could speak to that. And maybe there is also a surviving ground sloth. And both of those animals have kind of gotten mixed together into that particular legend.
1: That's what I think it is. Because <laughs> I talked to you and said, for sure, for sure, it was an upright, bipedal primate, no tail. Um, they never called it a, a wild man. I mean, they, they strictly keep it in the animal kingdom. They don't give it any magic powers. It's just a large, uh, you know, primate. And then, they, and then you also heard people that described a ground sloth. And um, I didn't really talk to anyone that was a great witness for the ground sloth, but I've read a lot of stuff about the ground sloth. Extra like, not, and it wouldn't be the giant one. What's what's the mid-sized one called?
2: It's a mylodont.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's the one. that sounds like it's still around, probably. Yeah, you the large. The- Go
2: ahead, Ken. I was just going to say the big one is megatherium, and that's the one that captures people's imagination because it was as big as an elephant. But obviously nothing that big I don't think could, could remain undetected. But something man-sized like a Mylodont, which I think they, they were about six feet tall, I, I think there's there's a, a possibility there.
0: Well, the, the witnesses we interviewed on Finding Bigfoot when we went to Brazil – yeah, they're kind of split down the middle. About half of them described something, you know, that was tall with claws and fangs, and that could very well be one of these sloth sort of things. And then the other half clearly said it was a monkey without a tail, because down there, there are monkeys, right? So they can compare sure. it to a, a known member of the, like, native fauna. So it just makes sense, of course. Where up here, the, the native folks, uh, there are no apes or monkeys in this part of North America. So uh, the, the native folks up here would clearly describe them as similar to themselves, you know, like uh, hairy Indians in the woods, basically. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And also when we we're down there, David Oren showed me a footprint cast of a mapingwari. And uh, it was a, a sloth print, essentially, is what it, comes Ooh, out of. Wow. it was. It was not a Sasquatch print. Um, so uh, that was interesting. And David, David Oren is completely against the, this idea that they, there could be Sasquatches down there. He said, no, that's absolute nonsense. I spoke spoke to 90-something witnesses or whatever he said, and um, all of them described this, you know, the sloth thing. And I said, well, what about the ones that say it's a monkey without a tail? And like the skeptics, he kind of said, yeah, but they're they're wrong.
1: I said, really? That was 20%. That was what? 20% of his witnesses described a, mo- a monkey without a tail.
0: Yeah, he just kind of writes it off as mis- misidentification. I said, well,
1: that's it. That's weird. I mean—
0: there are Bigfoot-like critters reported south of here, like, you know, in various other parts of South America. Why not in here? It's not like that. There's no habitat. You know, it's the Amazon, for God's sake.
2: Yeah, there's like 100 con- uncontacted tribes in the Amazon basin still. So, I mean, if you think about that. Now, granted, the government knows about them, but they, they don't always know where they are, and they can't find them. So, I mean, and those are entire tribes of people that are, that are living in there, so— Literally anything like that, I, th- I think, could could find safe refuge.
1: Right. You you seen that photo? Of the claw It was kind of semi, I guess, mummified of a of a of a sloth. Down. Did you ever see that photo? Of that claw taken in the '80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: What
1: what uh, what did you think of that? Well, there was
2: also a a, a giant sloth pelt that was found in a cave uh, down somewhere in, 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 Argentina as well, back in the 50 and the, and the, the, the pelt, the sloth pelt was in a cave, but it looked so well preserved that at the time, you know, that was, that was when people were really wondering if these things were still around. Cause how could a pelt or a claw survive that long? But, um, you know, we're talking about 10, 12,000 years, right. It was supposedly when the, the giant sloths died out. Um, but yeah, I guess it if it was preserved in the right, Type of environment like a cave, you know, where it wasn't exposed to the elements as much. Uh, so I think something like that could be mummified for a very long period of time. So um, I haven't heard any estimates on on how old they thought that that claw was. Do, do you have any well, information claw, on
1: that? The claw. Well, I thought the claw was more like semi-tropical, which would, you know, would not be conducive to mummification. Well, the, oh. the pelt is way down in Patagonia, where it's, you know. Yeah. Pretty, but what was those two brothers the governor's brother but he shot one you know but it just uh he said it was armored that the that his bullet bounced off it and that was just 10 or 15 miles from that cave where they found the pelt so that was in the 1890s I know that
2: uh, oh, yep that sounds right so yeah okay maybe i'm misinformed on the on the the claw then i thought that was found in that same region but
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm wrong. I, I, I thought it was up in the upper Amazon, and where's the pelt was from way down in Patagonia.
2: Hmm. Well, that that would be something that, that sounds like a good line of investigation to, to try to get more information on that. Which, uh, admittedly, I haven't really thought about it in years. But that's uh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. And so, how? I mean, because I mean, Bigfoot, as Cliff can tell you, Bigfoot alone could keep you busy full time for a lifetime. Like, so, I mean, I know like, I just bought that book. I haven't read it uh, last time I said about encounters with flying humanoids. I mean, how much time would you put into something like that? I mean, do you think these – I mean, I, I just can't – I mean, I, I just don't see that where there's a biological species of flying humanoids, you know, wing-type people flying around. What do you – how do you decide – I mean, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, how do you decide where to focus your energy with all – I mean, with Bigfoot being able to keep you busy for a lifetime, and you're dealing with giant snakes and you know Mothman. Or I guess that'd be one of yeah. So how how did you decide where to put your energy?
2: Well, I just kind of jump around, you know. I guess I I like many people, I get bored with one thing and I just want to try something else for a while. So I kind of okay. kind of jump around for to, from topic to topic based on what's going on in terms of you know recent uh, sightings or reports. Um, you know, if someone's invited me to a location because they think there's, you know, activity on a particular location. So, um, but you're right. I mean, there's, you could spend a lifetime on each of those subjects, you know, easily. Um, I will tag, I'd like to tag something onto what you're saying about Mothman, because, you know, there are, there are certain fringe cryptids, people are calling them cryptids now, which really have no basis in biology, things like flying humanoids and, Dogman and mermaids and all those types of creatures. And yet there are still accounts and sightings, but they just, you, I, you know, I tend to agree with you. I think these are more like supernatural metaphysical things that that are happening where these things are manifesting somehow or, or things that look like flying humanoids. But there's always kind of a gray area because in terms of the Mothman, for example, before that name became, uh, Sort of popular and, and proliferated throughout the press. Um, people in that county, Mason County, were calling the Mothman the bird. It was called the bird, the big bird. And uh, in fact, some of the early eyewitnesses, including a gentleman named Thomas Urey, that saw the Mothman back in 1966, swore what I saw was a giant bird. It was a big Thunderbird looking thing, it wasn't a flying, humanoid type creature. So, again, you have a composite identity situation where maybe there were sightings of big birds being mixed in with with these encounters of this Mothman creature, and they were all kind of being lumped together.
0: Now, these uh, big bird sightings, um, and uh, you know me, I'll refrain from Sesame Street jokes, even though that is my natural path. Um, These big bird uh, sightings and that sort of stuff, um, do they all seem to conform to uh, one kind of species or is it
2: a variety of bird types? That's you know a good I mean? question. Yeah, there's there's two general descriptions of the quote-unquote thunderbirds or big birds. Uh, half, the eyewitness, uh, half of the eyewitnesses, roughly half the eyewitnesses I interview, say that they basically these things are like giant feathered birds, uh, raptor types of birds like an eagle or a vulture with a hooked beak, usually a solid dark color like black or charcoal or dark brown, And enormous wingspans ranging anywhere from 12 or 15 to 20 feet across or more. And um, so that's one type. And that that kind of ties in nicely with many of the Native American legends of thunderbirds around the continent, which there are many. And then uh, the other half of eyewitnesses I interviewed swear to me that what they saw was actually more like a pterodactyl, like a a giant flying reptile that – you know, that di- supposedly died out 65 million years ago. And of course there were pterodactyls that had wingspans anywhere from, well, there were small ones, but typically the wingspans were anywhere from six to up to 35 feet across, you know? So, but the people that, that described those types of Thunderbirds or big birds say, no, this was prehistoric. It didn't have feathers, uh, had kind of leathery bat like wings. And sometimes they describe that the classic head crest that you envision on a pterodactyl, or a long reptilian tail with a flange on the end, which is also associated with some types of pterosaurs. So they, the the sightings kind of go right down the middle with with a number of reports on, you know, of either description, so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Does it doesn't make sense to me about that, is that how they discovered, now, like even T. rex had feathers, and a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. It seems like if you had a flying dinosaur, just it seems like they have feathers, you know, if land ones did,
2: yeah. Well, they they know now that the pterosaurs actually had um a feather, they weren't true feathers, they were proto feathers or early types of feathers called fibers. and uh, but they were like feathery or fur like covering on their body, but not on their wings. Oh. And I think, I think uh, you know, they, they they think now that pterosaurs were, were basically warm blooded, endothermic, so like all endothermic animals, birds and mammals, we, you know, they had to, to regulate their body temperature. Uh, they would have a, you know, a kind of a, a, warm covering, but you could understand why the wings might not be feathery because maybe they're more aerodynamic or were with, the, uh, you know, pterosaur wings were basically like bat wings. They were like thin, a thin membrane of skin that was stretched out across the the digits. So, um, but you're right. That is, it does seem like many of the sightings that I get from people that claim to have seen pterodactyls, it's almost like they're envisioning or describing the pterodactyls in in Jurassic Park as opposed to something that might be biologically accurate.
1: Right. How often do you, okay, you go back into Bigfoot reports, lake monsters, sea serpents, and find the same story, same description back for centuries. Was anyone reporting seeing flying reptiles prior to, like, even the discovery of pterodactyls?
2: Well, if you want to go way back, Bobo, you could uh, consider some of the dragon legends around the world. Um, You know, dragon's one of the most widespread legends around the world, and, of course, you know, it has many dragons in different cultures have different physical characteristics, but... I mean, if you envision a giant flying winged reptile with leathery skin and a, a long tail, I mean, that's as close to a to a, a dragon or what we would envision as a dragon as as I can imagine. But um, I don't know of many sightings or accounts from like the, you know, the early 1900s or, or late 19th century, that time period, you know, so there is definitely a big gap. Uh, But, you know, but then again, consider where uh, paleontology was. That was kind of exploding in the 19th century. So, um, you know, in the mid-19th century is when uh, fossils of different uh, archaic reptiles were were kind of recognized as being species from the past. So maybe the familiarity with, with something like a pterodactyl just wasn't that good until, you know, 150, 200 years ago. Right.
0: So uh, where do you stand, or what are your thoughts on uh, the chupacabra?
2: Well, chupacabra is kind of a good example of a composite identity cryptid. I think there's a lot of different things that are being lumped together. And the main thing that—and I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the stories— but the chupacabra, which means goat sucker in Spanish, first kind of made the scene in in the mid-1990s when there were these— there was this spate of live mysterious livestock killings down on the island of Puerto Rico. And the ranchers and farmers were finding their chickens, goats, and rabbits dead, were claiming that something was coming in uh in the dark of night and drinking the blood. They said that these animals were, the, the, the carcasses were bloodless, and they would often have two telltale puncture wounds left behind in the neck, as if a vampire came in and drank the blood. So um that's when the name Chupacabra kind of, became uh, popular, and, and people have a, a, a vision of this creature from Puerto Rico that supposedly is about three feet tall with a kangaroo-shaped body, spikes going down its back, big eyes, kind of a reptilian type of thing. So that, that was kind of the original image that people got in their minds of the chupacabra. Well, fast forward to 2004, where I'm at in the state of Texas, these weird, hairless uh, canids, dog-like animals, started turning up and um, they were also being linked to livestock killings and in fact I've interviewed two different chicken farmers who claim that these these Texas chupacabras were coming in and drinking the blood of their chickens killing the you know hordes of chickens in one night and, and not eating them so that's kind of where the name chupacabras started showing up in Texas but you know a completely different physical description and I've examined a half dozen the remains of a half dozen of the of these Texas chupacabras which were all easily identifiable as coyotes or wolves or feral dogs. But they were grotesque looking. All of them were were virtually hairless. Uh, Many of them have strange teeth or dentition. Some of them have disproportionate limbs and other physical abnormalities. So they're almost like kind of weird grotesque mutations or maybe they're diseased. Um, But it's created a lot of confusion because a lot of people See this being called a chupacabra, that being called a chupacabra. But what I always point out to people is that the main thing is that the name chupacabra describes a behavior pattern as opposed to a physical characteristic. It's the, it's the blood drinker, the goat sucker. And the last thing is the name chupacabra in Spanish or you know Mexican, Mexican-American and Latino culture is kind of a, a catch-all name for monster or boogeyman. So, you know, there, there are descriptions of all kinds of monsters in, throughout Mexico and Mesoamerica that are called chupacabras that, that don't look anything like the other two types. So it's really kind of just a mishmash of different things being lumped together.
0: Now, you've done a lot of field work throughout Mexico and Central America, haven't you?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like I have never been down there to do that. Um, I would just love to do it. So what, what are the differences or like what, are, what tell us about your experiences and thoughts um, comparing and contrasting, um, you know, monster sightings down there versus here?
2: Well, huge cultural differences. Um, one example I use is that there, there's a, a, a Mothman type sighting I investigated down in Monterey, Mexico back in 2009. This uh, police officer claimed that he was on patrol one night, and a fly—what he described as a flying witch or bruja—is the word they use in Mexico—came out, came out of the sky. And he said that she was this hideous-looking witch hag with uh, long, scraggly hair, giant black, lidless eyes, and dark skin. And she was wearing a hooded robe, and she actually was hovering in the air. And then she flew onto the hood of his patrol car. And clawed at him through the windshield, and he passed out. It was this was so. This is a, we interviewed this police officer that had this sighting, encounter allegedly, and in Mexico when this happened, this was like the headline news story. When you turned on the the, the news at six o'clock in Mexico that night, it was police officer attacked by a flying witch. Now, do you think for a second <laughs> that that would bad. happen in the United in the United States? You know, you're not going to flip on CNN and they're talking about a flying witch attacking a police officer. But in, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that in Mexico and Central America and a lot of these places, they very much embrace the, the weirdness and just the, uh, you know, the, the weirder, the better. And, you know, the monsters, they're very, very accepting of all of these different weird creatures and things that, that people up here are very skeptical about. So that's interesting in terms of you know, their perception. So I think they're, they're more open to kind of unexplained things and, and weird, strange creatures. Um, but it's also, that also makes it very difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. And I've found that interviewing people in, in Mexico and Central America, um, they often had very, uh, they would often adorn their cryptids with lots of supernatural and magical abilities and things that are, you know, wouldn't necessarily denote a, an unknown animal as much as just some kind of ghost or spirit or phantom or something. <clears throat> Lots of shape-shifting legends. The Nagawal is, a, is a, a well-known one. So things can, you know, there's a lot of witchcraft involved. It's almost like going back in time, you know, uh, to past centuries where people had witch trials and werewolves and things like that. So <clears throat> it's it's more challenging, I think, as an investigator because you have to be a little bit more, uh, cogent of the fact that people just generally see the world much differently and it's such a different culture that they really see the world in more of a kind of a, a folkloric kind of mystical way as opposed to, you know, the, the hard-boiled black and white skeptics that we have up here in, in the United States. <clears throat> one um, One quick story, I was investigating some chupacabra some livestock killings down in Mexico in 2014, down in a place called Puebla, which is down south of Mexico City. And it was a weird case because these three different farms, they had up to 100 goats killed in one night. Mm -hmm. And uh, the goats were being kept together in one pan. And originally what I was told is that the the carcasses were bloodless. So that's why they thought it was a chupacabra, that these goats were all killed, but there was no blood. The bodies were just laying there bloodless. Well, when I got there and saw the photographs, there was blood everywhere. There was blood all over the goats. There was blood here, blood there. So that was the first thing. And then um, ultimately my uh, determination was that what had happened was that these goats were killed by a a psychotic mountain lion. And I did some research and found out that it's not common, but there are some rare documented instances where mountain lions have basically gone loco they get into a goat pen and they just start killing everything and they're not hungry. They're just, they get on a killing spree. And it's kind of like when your cat's batting around a, a, a poor little lizard or mouse or something. And you, you can imagine the goats were probably going crazy and bleeding and running around. They're kind of confined together in this little pen. So that was, you know, uh, looking at the, the attack wounds on the goats, that was my determination was, you know, you guys had a mountain lion come in here and kill all these goats. Well, the the people, the the farmers that I spoke to would not accept that. No, it was, it is, it's the chupacabra. I said, no, I think you have a mountain lion. No, we do not have mountain lions here. I said, yes, you do. <laughs> you live out here in the frigging mountains of Mexico. There are mountain lions out here, but uh, they, they just wouldn't have it. And then on the similar uh, example is there was a, a dead baby goat that was found. It was a kind of a deformed baby goat that had like extra limbs and a deformed skull. And uh, the villagers gave it to the local priest because they thought it was a baby chupacabra. And he put it into a uh, big jar full of alcohol and blessed it and kept it in the church. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I immediately identified it as a, a baby goat because it had hooves. It was an artiodactyl. And we took it to a local veterinarian, uh, forensic veterinarian at the university with the, the priest still had it with him. And he did a test on it. He looked at it. He's like, yeah, it's a, it's a deformed baby goat. And the priest looked at us in a very stern way and said, no, it's a chupacabra. Huh. So he just would not accept, you know, the science or whatever determination we were making. In his mind, it was it was a, a chupacabra. So,
0: Yeah, I believe it. that settles it. Right. But I'll tell you, if my church show, when I was growing up, had uh, baby goats in jars, I might still be going to church every Sunday. <laughs> That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is a little bit more mundane, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm with you, man. now, now you've been to um, uh, Belize looking for the uh, um, the duendes and Guatemala too, looking for the sisamides and stuff, right?
2: Well, I, I didn't make it to Guatemala, and there's a, a quick story behind that, but i've been I've been to Belize a few times searching for the duende and the Sisamito, which is uh, you know, two different types of mystery hominins. Of course, the duende is more like a little foot about three feet, three to five feet tall, but very powerful, uh, flat yellowish. A yeah, duende faces. in
0: Spanish translates to dwarf. Or, yes. Uh, that, yeah, it's a dwarf is the word.
2: Yeah. Duende. And I've also, I also heard some of those stories in Mexico. They also have the duende in Mexico, supposedly, uh, the Sisamito, which is more like a Sasquatch. <clears throat> People describe it as just like a big upright ape that lives in the mountains, six or seven feet tall. Sound familiar. <clears throat> and, um, those sightings mostly stem from southern Belize, the mountains of Guatemala. Uh, there are also Sisamito st- uh, stories from Honduras and El Salvador. So, pretty much all over Central America. Um, so, yeah, two different types. And I think that the Sisamito or Sisamite, there's different ways to say it, is basically regarded as just a big ape that lives up in the mountains. So, uh, not really adorned with a lot of supernatural uh, uh, characteristics. Whereas the Duende, uh, much like little people legends around the world, people say the Duende is more like a little kind of um, gnome or goblin type thing that can vanish into thin air and it abducts small children and it's mischievous and plays pranks on people and stuff. And many of the stories and accounts that I heard of the Duende uh, definitely had those kind of magical or supernatural properties, although a couple of interesting things – my guide, and you guys can attest to this, but whenever you go to another country to do an expedition, you always want to hire a top guide, somebody that can survive in the jungle by themselves. You know, with, yeah. so that's that's basically what I got. Was this Maya guy named Honorio Mai, who was a, a chicalero, and he was a he was a badass. But uh, he told me that his brother one night had 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 been sleeping at this uh, at this pyramid, this famous pyramid in the jungle, known as uh, Kana and that he was assaulted by flying rocks coming out of the jungle, that something was throwing rocks at him. And he just assumed it was a duende because the duendes were known to kind of lurk around in some of those uh, Maya ruins and stuff. But um, So you do have an account of rock throwing, something we're familiar with here. Um, I was I was headed to Guatemala to investigate the Sisamito there, and at the time I had... A lot of very expensive equipment that I'd brought photographic equipment, night vision, trail cams. And I had my young wife at the time who was, uh, you know, she was in her young, um, very beautiful young girl in her early 20s. And we had a rental car. And as we were headed to Guatemala across the border, we stopped at this little farm right before the border. And the farmer warned us, he said that the banditos are out. And that basically what they're doing is they're chopping down trees and blocking the road. And when you stop your car, they come down with machine guns and they rob you and kill you and stuff. So I made a determination as I got to the border to just cancel that particular <laughs> leg of the trip because I had my wife with me. And, you know, I guess I guess, you know, I hadn't planned it out better. I didn't realize it was going to be that dangerous. Belize is a very safe country, one of the safest countries in Central America. So I never had any problems there.
0: Now, Bobo, you I, I don't know how this happened, but I, I know back in the day you were telling me you ended up owning some land, Where is it, in uh, in, in um, Nicaragua, is that right? Nicaragua. Now, you asked about Bigfoot-like animals when you were down there, cause you used to spend a fair amount of time down there surfing and stuff, if I remember right. Um, what did you learn and kind of compare and contrast it to what Ken
1: came up with? I'll us about Ken a little bit, but uh, I went down there, yeah, after the wars, after the Contra wars, Sandinista wars were over, uh, I went down and went up into the mountains there and you want to get around by horseback. And I talked to some of the villagers and I was looking for the Pita grande, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the the Bigfoot. And they, they all said was they were plentiful until, well, not lots of them, but they were definitely around. Like they, they had encountered them and they needed, they knew they were there. They'd find their footprints and they'd, you know, where they were feeding that sort of take their crops sometimes or animals. But during the, the wars in the 80s, like nine years, they had a big civil war there. Well, they put out millions of landmines. And they said that they would find the Pita grande is blown up every once in a while or they'd hear explosions. go off. I mean, all kinds of all kinds of wildlife would step on it and set it off and domestic animals and humans. So they said that after the wars, there was really for 10 years, there'd be a report here or there, but they hadn't, none of the people I spoke to had heard anything of them for at least 15 years or longer. They said they got wiped out in the war.
0: Now, Ken, when you were there talking to witnesses, had you did you speak to people who had seen them very recently, you know, uh, when you were talking to them? Or was it always uh, these like 5, 10, 20 years ago stuff? For mm-hmm.
2: They were mostly very old stories. People would talk about uh, – and I spoke to a lot of the local Ketchke Maya people who were most familiar with the Sisamito. And they would say things like they were more common in the past, kind of like Bobo would say. They would come down from the mountains rarely. Uh, many people claim to have heard their their calls, that they that they would scream and howl, and it sounded like a a giant man yelling or screaming from the mountains. Uh, but no recent sightings. The most recent evidence that I came across was a gentleman that told me that uh, there had been some giant human like footprints that had been found in the in the sand around a shrimp farm on the coast, uh, not too far from a location I was at. So I, I didn't have an opportunity to make it out to the shrimp farm, but. Even still, this was like a, a you know two years prior or something like that, so it wasn't it wasn't really a fresh case. But that was really the only quasi recent account of any Sissmito activity I could come across.
0: You know, I've often thought about you know the um, the 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 legend of what is it La Llorona? Mm-hmm. You know, the crying woman or whatever down in the the river gullies who are – she moans and wails looking for her drowned children and she's a ghost and all that sort of stuff. I've often thought that those are probably the Sasquatches, you know, uh, just, because think about it. Like, OK, long moaning howls down in the dried arroyos at night and everybody's scared to go look and when you look, you don't see anything and – Like I I don't know, man. Wouldn't you just think those are probably Sasquatches wandering around, or something like that?
2: Yeah, that same thought occurred to me. Uh, And in fact, Cliff, we have a right outside San Antonio. There's a Woman Hollering Creek. That's the name of the creek. So I've often wondered if that particular creek may have been somehow associated with it with a Bigfoot call.
1: Yeah, I'm sure those guys can. But those guys in the West Texas area, like where there's when you looked on the BFRO map back and you know, setting reports back there, there would be like nothing out there. But these guys, I know some of them are based out of San Antonio. They've got a lot of reports, and I and some of them are actual eyewitnesses themselves from uh, Bigfoots being out in areas that you would not associate a Bigfoot with being in.
2: Yeah, I've come across that. I've got some reports from uh, just west of San Antonio. And keep in mind, I'm on the far northwestern edge of San Antonio, and I'm basically on the edge of the desert. So when I leave here... And head west, um, there's not a lot of coverage. It's like a lot of cactus and kind of scrubby brush. But um, there are sightings I've investigated up near a place called Junction, which is about an hour west of San Antonio, pretty much in the middle of the desert. Um, Uvalde County, kind of southwest of San Antonio, has a lot of activity, supposedly. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Horizon City monster, but that one was reported outside of El Paso. Sightings in the 1990s. And um, yeah, so surprisingly, there are a lot of, of sightings in some of those locations that you just wouldn't, it would be hard to visualize a Sasquatch because you just don't have a lot of forested areas and trees and frankly, not a lot of water
1: either, you know? Right. So, Ken, I remember reading, must have been 10 years ago or maybe 15, but probably about 10 years ago, about the Navy, and this was in like the San Francisco Chronicle. The Navy, uh, on doing some maneuvers out in the Northern Pacific, came across three blips, whatever, on the sonar that were about forty-five feet long or so, up to sixty feet, and there are three different sizes. And they were they were they were going at about forty knots. It was a sub chasing boat, Mm -hmm. and they were chasing these things. These things were diving down and away from the ship, and they were swimming away from them at forty. So they were going like at least 50 knots and they dove down until they got away from the ship out of the sonar range. Do you know about that story? No,
2: I I don't. That one doesn't strike a bell, but I don't, I've heard of something called the bloop, which is that uh, a noise that's been recorded by some under, underwater uh, hydrophones, but.
1: This was sonar and it, it was actually like a, one of the fastest ships in the Navy Hmm. pursuing them and they were able to out distance them while diving they're diving like at a 45 degree angle and you, know, you think getting that deeper water it's denser it's gonna be harder to travel to harder to travel through they were still able to accelerate away from the uh ship
2: what do you you know what can you say i mean the ocean obviously has a lot of potential for all types of unknown animals <clears throat> as recently as um 2016, a new species of whale was described uh, only because it washed up dead on a beach in Alaska, and they put two and two together. But uh, there are new species of whales, sharks. And of course, you have the 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 Mega Mouse shark in '76. Uh, you know, the giant squid. Um, so, the, you know, there's certainly, the potential is there. If anywhere on the planet, the potential for, for unknown animals in the ocean, I think even the most conservative scientists will acknowledge that there are probably things down there, large things that we haven't found yet.
1: Right? Didn't they find a chunk of tentacle and they were laying the transatlantic cables from a giant squid that was, would have put the thing like triple or four times the size of the largest known giant squid now?
2: I don't remember that that account. I think there's a lot of speculation about how big giant squids get, since they're rarely seen except when they wash up dead. But uh, the largest giant squid on record, I think, was estimated to be like 57 feet long, from the from the the, the tip of the tentacle to the to the to the tip of the body or the carapace. But uh, no, I hadn't heard that. There was a giant. I know there was a story. Wasn't there a story about a a, a navy ship that uh, came to uh, our dock in San Diego back in the 70s and it had like these giant squid suction teeth you guys know that giant squids all squids have a little a line of teeth in their in their suction cups right, right. suckers yeah. so I don't, you guys heard that story i think it was featured on that uh, arthur clark's mysterious world years ago but uh, they didn't see the squid. But something uh, on this the state-of-the-art Navy vessel, the the radar hood, which was a big rubber thing on the front of the ship, suddenly went out of service. And when they went back to to port and docked, they found these giant sucker scars and and these little teeth embedded in the rubber that were much larger than than any known squid. So you do get stories like
1: that. And there was those whales they found like in the late 1800s, early 1900s that I uh, know they didn't they find some. Giant male sperm whale that had suction scars on it that were just the I can't and remember how big they a, a foot across or something, yeah. Huge. Man, and they, they find how, giant look, beaks in their belly, of
0: course, too, you know, indicating this huge squids that they've been eating. Oh yeah. Pretty badass. Pretty badass, man. Like sperm whales are are the are the poop, man. Like they are amazing. They're battling giant squids in the inky depths of the ocean. I'll never do anything that cool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can imagine. That's probably the greatest battle in nature. If you can imagine a a sperm whale and a giant squid going at it, that would be something to a sight to behold, no doubt.
1: Yeah, because the squid, I guess, tries to cover up the blowhole so it can't breathe. If they're big enough, is what I've heard. I had a battle. I I had, well, Cliff, wasn't a deep sea battle, but I, I battled a, octopus that was 11 foot eight inches across on the deck of a boat because um when you're crabbing an octopus is your worst enemy they'll go they're they're so smart they they can get through such small holes and stuff they'll go in, if you're if they get on your line because you we call them a string you put out a, a, a bunch of pots in a row traps call them pots too crab pots in a row and the the squid, will, the, the octopus will move down the line and They'll eat all the bait out of your jars, and they'll kill all the crabs in your pot and suck out the juice, the meat out of them. But you'd be surprised how much they can eat. And we pulled. We were going down a string of a pot, uh, we were just a string of pots, and all, all the all the cows were empty. Just you could see where the squid had just broken through with the beak and sucked them out. Uh, the octopus killed. Yeah, sorry, the octopus. It was eating the squid bait, and killed all the crabs. And I mean, we'd gone through like probably eight or nine pots, and like just each, you know, every every crab was worth like seven, eight bucks. And it it killed several dozens. So it was like in the hundreds of dollars at that point. We pull up this pot, and the octopus is still in the pot. It's a big one. My skippers all get it, get it, you know, because it was trying to escape. And it was on the deck, and I grabbed it. And I, it wrapped up on me, and it was trying to get me with its uh, beak. And I was fighting with it, and I ended up having to stab it a bunch of times and didn't kill it, threw it into a trash can, and then put some stuff on top of it to keep it down in the trash can. And uh, I felt bad because I had just seen that documentary on octopuses, like how they decorate their homes and how smart they are, and they have senses of humor and just how awesome they were. So I felt really bad. Like I wanted to throw it back where skipper's all, no, no, you can't, you can't. And then I, when I had to get it out of the, because we used the bucket for and uh, bait and stuff, and uh, the trash can, so I had to, get the, I had to transfer it, then it attacked me again. It was definitely weaker after I'd stabbed it so many times, but it's still, I mean, I was, that thing was scary, strong. It only weighed about 40 pounds, but it was almost as strong as I was.
2: Yeah, octopuses are badasses, no doubt. Uh, you know, as you said, I mean, it's a mollusk, but they uh, they they have like nearly a half a billion neurons firing in their brain, which makes them smarter than like guinea pigs and stuff, you know? So, I mean, you think about that, they're pretty clever animals. But one of the really amazing things about octopuses that I learned just recently is, um, you know, they've kind of been sequencing the genome and stuff. And they, what the scientists have found out is that octopuses can actually – routinely edit their RNA, their ribonucleic acid, which essentially means that they can they can alter their evolution and their morphology like instantly. So they're pretty, pretty crazy, wild, weird animals. Uh, And they're smart. (laughs) You know, they're really smart, too. So,
0: yeah, you know, a number of years ago, I kind of told myself I'm not going to eat those anymore. You know, because I love sushi, you know. So when I'm in a sushi place, anything called taco, I'm going to eat it, right? Because I love Mexican food too, like Mexican food, taco. But but no, it's not. It's actually taco is, uh, is octopus, you know. So, um, and if they're delicious, don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to eat them because I kind of feel like in many ways they're probably smarter than me, you know. <laughs>
1: uh, um,
0: so I kind of stopped eating those and I, and I really don't really eat squid anymore for the same reason, you know, because uh, uh, I don't know if anything, you know, on this planet has a high probability of not being from this planet. I'd say that's high on the list, man.
1: Yeah. I'm the same way. I don't need octopus at all anymore. That's the same reason I quit eating pig. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pigs are real smart too. Yeah. yeah. After having friends with miniature popular pig pets and spending a lot of time, I'm like, God, oh, I can't eat these guys anymore.
0: Yeah. But you know, at the same time, you remember Bobo a few years ago when he had that leg situation going on and for a second, it looked like you may have to get it amputated. Yeah. If you had a party, you know, I, I would eat part of your leg, you know? Like, I, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I'd be honored. Like, like, wouldn't you, though? Like, like, you know, if, if you did that, would you eat your own leg? Like, just a little piece of it, just taste it?
1: To be a good host, I'd have to eat some. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. okay.
0: So, and Ken, what about you? If you were invited to Bobo's house for a, um, a leg-eating party... And um, w- would you try it?
2: Well, you always want to respect the, the local culture wherever you go. <laughs> so I would say, yes, uh, at the risk of offending Bobo or, or, you know, some of his friends and family, I would, you know, at least at least taste the, the leg. Yeah, no, Maybe, no, maybe it, I'd go around the corner and spit it out in the garbage can after that. But.
0: Yeah, we probably have to spit it out like all the gristle. You Just, <laughs> just chew it up to get the flavor.
1: I was trying to work out. Well, when they said they were probably about to take it off, I was like, oh, man, I'm not just going to go in the hospital and get it. So I was um, talking to my old skipper, Jimbo, about taking the boat down to the Farallons. And this sounds, I know it just sounds super stupid now, but at the time I was thinking like, well, I'm going to be one legged. I'm a commercial fisherman. I'm going to be out of work. I need some money. I thought, well, if I'm going to lose my leg, I may as well do it kind of cool and So we were going to, I called my buddy up down to to film it. I was going to go down to the fair lines and stick it. When we were working on a harness, I could hook up and stick me in the boom and stick me out over the side of the boat and, and, and uh, stick my, get the water all chummed up and get some whites around and stick my leg in the mouth of a great white and have it bite it off. I remember you were talking about that. I thought it was a great idea. I could could, could get the footage and I could sell the footage for a lot of money, you know, someone would buy it, some network or something would, you know, so it would definitely get some money for it. And I thought, well, and I had it all worked out. I was going to get an EMT and have a tourniquet kit and this and that. But then people talked me out of it. Uh, don't listen to people, man. That was a great idea. And I thought so, but then they were saying like, well, what if it gets, what if it comes out of the water higher than you expect and it gets you above the knee, then you're screwed because you need the knee joint. That was the main thing. And they also said, that shark attack victims, I guess, the bites. There's, uh, you get some pretty crazy infections, and I already had one infection. I need another one.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I guess it probably isn't a, such a good idea looking at it now.
2: Yeah, in retrospect, you know, it it all worked out. So,
0: but at at the time, I'm with you. It made sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still think. Was, I mean, if I would have lost something, I'd have felt really stupid having it done in the hospital. I'm glad I didn't do it now since I still have it.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag #BigfootAndBeyond.